This is David Mashi, editor of Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. On today's episode, part of a series entitled Fortress and Frontier, Conversations on Healthcare and Innovation, Mercatus Senior Fellow and Healthcare Scholar, Robert Grayboys, sits down with Dr. Jason Wong to discuss aspects of the healthcare industry, including Dr. Wong's ideas about disruptive innovation, as well as the costs of over-regulating medical care. Dr. Wong is a practicing physician who, along with Clayton Christensen and Jerome Grossman, co-authored a path-breaking book on medical innovation entitled The Innovator's Prescription, A Disruptive Solution for Healthcare. The audio of this conversation, as well as the written transcript, has been edited for Clarity. Welcome to all of you out there, and a special welcome to Dr. Jason Wong, whom I have been privileged to know for quite some years. Today's podcast is entitled The Disruptive Innovator for several reasons. First, Jason co-wrote what I would consider to be the most important book on medical innovation of at least the past 20 or 30 years, I don't know, maybe the last 50 years. It's called The Innovator's Prescription, A Disruptive Solution for Healthcare, published in 2009. The best known of the three co-authors, the late Harvard business professor Clayton Christensen, originated the term disruptive innovation around 1995, and ever since, it has been among the most talked about concepts in business. The second co-author, Jerry Grossman, MD, tragically did not live to see the book published. And now Jason is the sole surviving co-author, and as such, I guess you're the keeper of the flame for a masterpiece of medicine and business. In his copious spare time, Jason co-founded a think tank now known as the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. He's written academic papers and mass media articles in a panoply of leading publications. He served on boards of directors and consulted on or assisted with projects for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, IBM Watson Research Center, Pfizer, Medtronic, and one of my personal favorites, the XPRIZE Foundation. He received his B.S. and M.D. from the University of Michigan and his M.B.A. from Harvard Business School. So today we're going to talk about the book, about Jason's medical career, about his role as an entrepreneur in the healthcare space. As always, Jason, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, first of all, did I get all my facts right in the introduction? Yes, you did. Good. <laughs> You're always lavish with praise. I appreciate that. I've been fortunate to have really fallen into a lot of these opportunities and did my best to make the most of them. Well, I think you succeeded. Let's dive right into the book. At the George Washington University, I use the Innovator's Prescription as one of two or three principal texts for a graduate course I taught. The students loved it as did I. And in fact, at the Mercatus Center where I work, the whole healthcare team is currently reading the book all together. And it was at someone else's suggestion, not mine. Could you explain what the book is about and why the concept of disruptive innovation became such a catchphrase in the business world? Sure. Well, first of all, let me commend the group at your department that's taking on reading a 450-page book. That's no easy task. Over about a two-month period, every two weeks, we meet to discuss it. But yeah, the origin, of course, of the term disruptive innovation was from Clayton Christensen's research. Even before professor you know, responsibilities, it was as a graduate student 
researching things like hard drives and uh, you know mechanical excavators and really it was his attempt to explain why products seem to evolve into things that um, were more convenient more simple to use but also more accessible and affordable over time and it also helped him answer the question why good companies seem to fail at, at some time or another, uh, oftentimes, if, you know, on the surface without explanation. But when he dove deeper, that's when he, you know, came up with this this concept of disruptive innovation. And basically, in a nutshell, it, it states that good companies follow a basic mantra in decision making, which is you always try to build better products that almost inevitably become more complex as they become more powerful and more expensive as they become more powerful and become less accessible to people with less demanding uses. And so that opens the door for what Clay called the disruptive innovator. It was typically a new entrant to the industry, a startup or, or somebody from the outside coming into the industry for the first time that came up with a new product or service that did deliver on some of those um, areas of, of convenience and simplicity and affordability that then grabbed hold of the marketplace and then grew from there and started to take over the, the industry. And so The Innovator's Prescription, our book uh, that we wrote together, was really our, our attempt to apply these these business principles that had been developed by you know observing and researching myriad other industries, but to apply it to healthcare because all of the things I've just mentioned, the need for access and affordability, simplicity and convenience, were sorely needed in healthcare. And so it, it was very important to Clay that we cover the healthcare industry thoroughly and examine uh, each stone, leaving no stone unturned uh, as we, we took these ideas and said, well, what if the industry followed some of the, the, these principles and evolutionary characteristics we had seen in other industries? Give a couple of examples of disruptive innovators uh, that you mentioned in the book or that you've seen since and tell a little about what marks them as disruptive innovators. Sure. Well, I, I will start with an example from outside of healthcare, um, because uh, even though your your audience might be healthcare focused, I find that for people who are not familiar with the theory, that it often helps to understand the theory based on examples that are you know much more understandable in their day to day life. And one of my favorite examples that Clay used and I myself use in, in presentations is the story of computing and how computers have evolved in our own lifetimes through disruption to become very affordable, very accessible, and, and portable. And yet it wasn't that long ago when you think about the original computers, big giant mainframe computers, or even the mini computers that followed, they were much more complex, very expensive and really <laughs> housed in their own rooms and were typically not operated by non-experts myself, but were the domain of expert engineers and technicians that usually ran computing jobs for us. And so what disruptive innovation would explain how computing evolved would be that these very expensive, complex machines were not very convenient and we're, we're clearly out of the purchasing power of the typical individual or family. And so it really took 
new devices that came into the fold, such as the personal computer or the tablet or today the smartphone, that brought successive waves of innovation that made computing ever more accessible and affordable. But it only did so not because the originators of the mainframe computer decided that that was a good thing, nor was it the originators and dominating companies of the mini computer era that decided to bring in these more portable or personal devices. It was, again, new entrants. It was a new set of companies or a new wave of companies that led each of these innovation waves. And so PCs were ushered in by a new wave of companies and then following them, you know, laptop computers and following them, smartphones and tablets really dominated by different sets of companies in the computing industry. And again, that's very typical of what we see in other industries where it's it's not one company that dominates throughout. It's it's one company that dominates in one era. And then new entrants come in and figure out a better way or, or cheaper way or some more appealing way and then takes over the industry. Now, translating that to healthcare was challenging at times because regulations were different. It was a public need. There were a lot of entrenched incumbent companies that, that ruled healthcare. And so trying to see pockets of, of disruption was, again, challenging at times. But um, one example that we were really eager to, to explore in the book was this business model of retail clinics. And so at the time of writing the book, Minute Clinic was still a private, small entity. It, I think, had, had just started expanding, but was this was still prior to being acquired by, by CVS. But we saw some hallmarks of disruptive innovation in this retail clinic model. Namely, it, it did not utilize a lot of the same business model characteristics of a, a clinic, which it emulated, but did not copy. And so, for example, instead of opening up a freestanding clinic with, you know, a check-in desk and a reception desk and, and multiple exam rooms, this was a single clinic based inside of a, a store, pharmacy or a grocery store. In addition, it was uh, not staffed by a physician, but uh, a nurse practitioner that was supervised in the background by a physician typically. But again, the personnel looked very different. And a lot of this was guided by new tools such as point of care diagnostics that allowed the nurse to get a diagnosis right there on the spot. And it was the tool that did a lot of the quote unquote thinking to make the diagnosis, which then guided the treatment. And this was, again, was very different from what normally happened in the doctor's office, which is the doctor doesn't really know what's gonna come through the clinic doors. And so they need to be prepared to diagnose really anything uh, in their expertise. And so they, it requires them to go through, you know, the five or 10 minute Q&A with the patient and going through their history and then maybe ordering some tests and then finally coming up with an answer, perhaps, you know, two or three days later once the results come back. And that's the usual model. But again, you need that sort of model for a wide array of conditions. But when it's something that can be tested with the test right on the spot, well, you can apply a different model to that. And that's what the retail clinic figured out. And so they posted a menu of 12 or 14 conditions that required no appointment. You could just walk in, pay a fixed cash price. They didn't take insurance at the beginning. 
And so all of these were just so different. So the act of diagnosis and treatment was different. The payment model was different. The staffing was different. The infrastructure was different. And we said, oh boy, this is a really different model, even though you really had to look deeper to find out. And so we sort of held up retail clinics as a very classic disruptive innovation. And the growth we've seen, seen then has sort of borne that out. And one of the really important characteristics, at least in my view, and you wrote it so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it is that often the disruptive innovation, at the beginning, some people assume, well, this is some blockbuster, new, brilliant, new invent, new creation. But really, it's often a lesser product than what's on the market. It's not as good, but it's incredibly cheaper. So an iconic example would be when Apple came out with its Macintosh. Certainly the Macintosh could not compete with the capabilities of an IBM mainframe or, or some of the other mini computers that were out there, but it could do quite a bit and it was really cheap. And ultimately when it did come out, it's now decades later and you know the Apple that sits on my wife's desk is, can do things that the, probably the mainframe could never have done. But it initially begins with this downward shock in the, I don't want to say quality, they're not bad, but they they do less, but drop the price incredibly. Yeah, again, and this is one of the challenging problems that we we ran into when trying to apply Clay's, you know, concepts from the business world into healthcare, because exactly the dilemma you just had trying to explain, well, it's not actually a, a diminishing of quality. We had to really reframe what disruptive innovation looked like in healthcare because we would not really accept a, a decrease in quality. As expensive as healthcare is, we will continue to push for the gold standard if it's more expensive than the alternative, as long as the gold standard is shown to be superior. And so in healthcare, that's a death knell for a lot of disruptive innovations that perhaps could do something disruptive, but just can't match up in quality. And that's you know, unacceptable in, in most areas uh, that we looked at. And so the term we came up with was precision. If you could come up with a more precise way of doing the work, whether, you know, in the case of retail clinics, it was precision diagnostics. Instead of having the diagnosis filter through a doctor's brain and, and all the knowledge that, that they have, if we could all embed that into a simple-to-use diagnostic tool that gave you the answer right on the spot, well, that was a, a precise way of coming up with the same answer. And then you have a, that's tied to a, a specific treatment. Then it becomes a very precise roadmap for care. It's almost like a recipe. And those are the arenas that we thought where disruption could really take hold in, in healthcare. So it's not as simple as swapping out a nurse for a doctor. It's not as simple as just replacing a clinic with a retail clinic wholesale. They are not proper substitutes. But for a certain sub-segment of services that are being provided, yes, they can do it. And in fact, I would argue they can do it better because they're doing it not just, just as precisely, but perhaps more precisely, so often with better results. But of course, as we mentioned, also along with it, the, the classic things of disruptive innovation, which is more affordable, which retail clinics were, and more conveniently accessible, which retail clinics were. And so, yeah, we, we were very careful to acknowledge that quality drops in healthcare were really not acceptable. And for people who didn't really get the nuance of that argument, we actually did get quite a bit of pushback from some physicians who scoffed at the notion that disruptive innovation was appropriate 
in healthcare. And I said, well, if you really believe that, then should primary care doctors be allowed to do EKGs and or interpret chest x-rays on their own? Shouldn't all of that be done by the experts, the cardiologists and, and the radiologists? And the fact is healthcare has undergone a, a large number of disruptions over time. It's led to a panoply of healthcare organizations, uh, different areas uh, where you could get uh, care. So it's not just your general hospital, but specialty clinics and multi-specialty clinics, nurse call lines, urgent care centers, ambulatory uh, surgical centers. You know, these are all kind of shifts in work that have happened over the decades. And along with changes in venue of care, changes in who takes care of you. And, you know, we've seen this huge growth in a number of subspecialties, but along with it, also the, the necessary growth of care coordinators and not just primary care doctors, but nurses um, who help educate uh, patients and oversee care and even staff a lot of the, uh, the care needs. So disruption is something that I think has existed in healthcare for quite some time. And I often tell people that all Clay, Jerry Grossman, and I did was come along and put a, a label on it so people could see what was happening. I just had a conversation with someone from, a, let's say, a well-known uh, national healthcare company, and he was talking about a particular sliver of business, not extremely narrow, but, but a sliver nevertheless. And he said, we have just done some exhaustive studies. He said, they're going to be explosive whenever we release it. He said, we're a little bit afraid of releasing it because what it showed was that in, in everything in that space, the nurse practitioners score higher than the doctors on every dimension. It is, and it is an area of uh, precision care, as you were saying. It's, he said, but there's not a, there wasn't a dimension in it in which the doctors did better than the uh, nurse practitioners. He said they're not going to like that, but those were the data. Yeah, you know, there was one really ex interesting exception to what you said. You were saying that these are generally upstarts, uh, new entrants into fields. But your book had one that I talk about all the time. In fact, I talked about it on a um, previous podcast, which was the IBM PC. Uh, you had made a point in the book that disruptive innovation almost never comes from large or established entities. And yet IBM somehow managed to break the mold on that. And they did it basically by building a PC unit, sending it off to another state. And I may be slightly exaggerating, but basically said, don't tell us what you're doing. Just tell us when it's all done, because if you tell us, we'll stop you. Uh, so just do it. So I don't know, I've given a very simplified model of it there. Maybe you talk a little bit more about that and how they pulled it off. Yeah, and, and you're actually alluding to the other reason why I love using computing as the introductory model for people to understand disruptive innovation. Because, yes, there was one very major exception to that, that rule that incumbents always fell by the wayside when a new entrant came into the industry and came up with a better way of doing things, that exception being IBM. As you mentioned, we highlighted IBM in the book as, as the stalwart innovator that had somehow figured its way out of disruption time and time again. Because not only was it a mainframe computer company that became a mini computer company, it then became a PC company and now is really out of hardware largely and it's mostly a services company. So it has transformed itself time and time again. And it remains one of a, you know, a few dozen companies that have done it at least once. And 
from my recollection, is still the only company that I know of that has done it uh, multiple times. So it is exceedingly difficult to disrupt yourself, as we, we describe this, and that is to compete with yourself by coming up with some autonomous business unit or uh, an autonomous spinoff or some skunk works team that is allowed to operate independently, basically working as a startup within the mothership. And the hardest part is not that, but allowing that startup or skunk works team to grow and grow and grow and become its own company, perhaps taking over the mantle of the mothership itself. And we've seen failure after failure. You know, Xerox Park, as innovative as it was, is a classic example of a number of innovations that just failed to get out of a corporate giant into the mainstream. The reason why I love using IBM and the computing store as an example is I'm not just talking to startups, but more often I'm talking to the incumbents of the industry. I'm invited to speak to you know, physician groups or hospitals or insurance companies and trying to tell them not only is disruptive innovation important, but it means your days are numbered unless you can understand the lessons of disruption through business history and looking at what other industries have gone through and basically following, if you will, the pattern that IBM has. And IBM, as successful as it was, did not come to those decisions lightly. It was really several make or break decisions in the company's history that ultimately forced its hand and said, okay, we have to do this or we're going to die. Yeah, I think it's it's very necessary for the incumbents of the healthcare industry to take a close look at their business models and see, you know, how long can we keep this this ball rolling? You know, is it are we just buying time through mergers and acquisitions or are we truly able to reinvent ourselves and come up with new business models that fit the future? I struggle to think of a lot of examples where incumbents have have done this well in healthcare and it may be just because the evolution scale I think is a lot slower. I often talk about studying computing history as, as you know, similar to studying fruit flies in high school biology. They, they tend to evolve just much faster, and that's why we study them. In healthcare, the evolution's a little bit slower. And so, yeah, if you're, I, I've seen some examples of, you know, interesting spinoffs that are coming out of uh, larger healthcare organizations, but what happens when they're successful? Do they get reabsorbed into the mothership and, and then die off like many disruptive ideas uh, do? Or do they actually become a successful company? I would say in healthcare, I see much more disruption coming from the new entrants, not from the incumbents. The first two podcasts I did in this series uh, earlier this year were with the same person, Dr. Temple Grandin, who's a famous animal scientist in Colorado, and also almost certainly the world's most famous autistic person. And we were having this discussion. She, she herself is an astonishing innovator. And I mentioned your book, and I mentioned the IBM case and, and the PC division. And her very quick answer to me was, that's almost the same relationship that Pfizer had with BioNTech. She said Pfizer's a gigantic company, but they can't come up with the, uh, a vaccine like that. All they did was they opened their checkbook and said, you do this, tell us when you've got it, and uh, in the meantime, we'll write checks uh, to get you there. And I, I thought it was a striking example of it. Uh, I don't know if you can say whether what you think of that particular analogy, uh, although what I've since found out is that's pretty much the whole design of the pharmaceutical industry now. And I would say healthcare at large. Uh, the, the, the notion that the large companies recognizing that they can't innovate disruptively basically have resolved to buy up disruptive companies and make that part of their, their business. 
And so you see this with the growing conglomerates in healthcare that have branched out across the divisions of healthcare, you know, pharmacies that that become, you know, GPOs and insurers and healthcare providers all in one. And similarly, even traditional giants that uh, either started as a hospital or started as a insurer that then bought up clinics and then rolled out an insurance plan or bought up a struggling hospital and become all-in-one giants. And if they need to provide a new service, rarely do they invent it themselves, but they see, okay, who's around that we could buy up. That is a, a potential strategy for maintaining your position in the pecking order. But again, I, I think history has shown us that eventually somebody will come in with a more streamlined business model that can provide your services at a fraction of the cost or with much greater convenience. And perhaps one of those will become successful enough that you cannot buy them. And, you know, we're seeing some of that in the world of telemedicine where you now have companies with billion dollar valuations that, you know, I, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of companies to be able to swallow that price tag. And so that could be, for example, a, a real fissure in this notion that you can just continue to merger and acquire your way out of the uh, disruptive trap. One of the fun questions I've encountered many times in discussions of disruptive innovation is when you, when you mention it, people will just reflexively say, well, like Uber, uh, except that I've heard arguments that say, no, if you think Uber is a disruptive innovator, you don't understand disruptive innovation. That the difference is Uber was a better product than taxi cabs the moment it hit the streets. And and uh, you did not have the sort of narrowing down precision, the what maybe wrongly or be referred to as a, a lesser quality in, on some dimension, that it was always better than taxis. So I don't know. Any thoughts? Yeah. I, I, and I, I know there are colleagues of mine, I, I believe Clay also wrote that Uber was not a disruptive innovation. Uh, again, you know, this is... Oh, interesting. I didn't know he I didn't know he wrote that. Yeah, I believe he did. And certainly I know one of my colleagues did. I myself actually have always thought of it as a disruptive innovation. The question is, what is it disrupting? You know, was it disrupting taxi drivers? Well, you know, you could make an argument, not really, because you're still using drivers. You know, maybe as if Uber's dreams of self-driving taxi service, you know, if that ever comes in, comes to fruition... That would be disruptive to traditional taxi drivers. The other argument is Uber was disruptive to the taxi licensing model and the dispatch model, that now you sort of had a app that kind of took over all of that. So now it was all software driven and automated and everybody was being directed to the most efficient point. I would argue that element of disruption absolutely makes me think of Uber as a disruptor. There is some debate here. And a lot of times you see this happen with new models that just we've never seen before. And even though disruptive innovation is a theory that I and many others have looked at for quite some time and applied to a lot of examples, when we encounter one of these new ones, it can be difficult. And I think one of Clay Christensen's most famous misses was he did not recognize the iPhone as disruptive when it first came out. And I was working with him at the time, and I remember going through these conversations. And it was because we didn't recognize the iPhone as a computer we recognized it initially as a phone because that was the format it took. It was what we saw it as. And as phones were just beginning to add on text messaging and photo capabilities, we started to, and, and music players, we started to think, are they just packing in everything they can into this handheld device just for the fun of it? Because it's really taking the, the shape of a classic 
sustaining innovation, which is you pack in more features and performance and the product becomes more and more expensive and out of reach of more and more people. And we thought, well, as a phone, it's not disruptive. It's adding in these features that a lot of people don't really care about. A lot of people said, why would I want to take a picture with my phone when I already have my camera? The picture on the phone is so much worse in quality. Why would I do that? And so we thought it was initially a sustaining innovation in the phone market. And iPhone was really just kind of the top of the line phone that people who could afford it would buy. And of course, the miss was, well, it was really disrupting computers at the very bottom. It was a very portable, affordable computer that replaced a lot of the things that we used to have to head home and work on our desktops or laptops to do. But yeah, I, I would I would argue that the Uber debate is probably similar, where it, some of it will just take time to figure out what is Uber really doing and what industry is it disrupting. And it may be something that we're just not seeing. The Innovator's Prescription is now 12 years old. So when you thumb through it, is there something in there that you can say, we absolutely nailed that, that we we, we were ahead of the curve and, and really got it before other people did? Anything in there like that? Well, maybe you could tell me, but one thing that we talked about in the book was this idea of decentralization. And it was written about in later in the, in the one of the later chapters in Medical Devices, I believe, where we talked about how industries and products tend to start out very centralized, much like the mainframe computer. And it's centralized because it's expensive and complex, and therefore people are expected to travel to the solution source. And then with each wave of in disruptive innovation, we said, well, that matches up with decentralization of an industry, that um, things become more available to those on those to markets on the outer rings looking in that uh, could not access the centralized solution, but now you provided a solution for for these people in a decentralized way. And of course, smartphones being almost as decentralized as you can get because it's in everybody's pocket. And so if you, if you take that model, we wrote the book really as smartphones were just beginning to enter the mainstream. I think we were doing a lot of the research in 2006, 2007. I hadn't even bought my first smartphone yet. And so some people had them, most people didn't, I think. But if you if you take that notion of, of decentralization fully, and this is where the history of computing and the history of healthcare pretty much intersect, right? You now, you know, if full decentralization were to happen, well, in computing, you've got devices in everybody's pockets. And if we were arguing at the same time for decentralization of healthcare, then in a way, telemedicine was was bound to take off. And so I don't remember if we actually wrote a lot about telemedicine in the book, but I like to think that this notion of decentralization, if you had asked me, you know, as we were writing the book, does this make sense? I would have said, yeah, it makes perfect sense. One thing that we got wrong is that's usually the question I get. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, the, the one we got wrong, and I almost was sure we would get it wrong because we, we had really ventured out to, to make a prediction here, was our prediction of health savings account adoption. And we were, we were very bullish on it because we were, you know, I was also a student not just of Clay Christensen, but of Regina Herzlinger at Harvard Business School. And she was a big proponent of a consumer-directed health care and I think that went hand in hand with a lot of the things that Clay and I were writing about, the idea that eventually we needed more 
care in the hands of patients so that they had influence over decision-making. There were services that were much more attuned with their needs. And along with it, there was a basically a medical uh, pocketbook that they could use to actually pay for those services away from you know the typical institutions of healthcare insurance and et cetera. And so we were, as I said, very, very bullish on, on this notion. We thought disruption in insurance could go hand in hand with disruption in healthcare services, but they really needed to go hand in hand. And that's what fell apart in our prediction. And so you could see in our book that, you know, it was a very brave, I would say, extension of mathematics that led to our prediction. We said, look, here, there's a very high margin of error here, but it was even slower than I think what we predicted there. And I, when I look back, I would say that that need for disruption in health payments to go hand in hand with disruption in healthcare services, that linkage is what's so essential. And we point this out in other areas of the book that for real disruption to happen in healthcare, those two need to move in tandem. And the fact that they often do not, because you're really often talking about very separate organizations that are disrupting each of those areas, the result is that they tend to move in jagged, you know, movements uh, in progress. And so I would say that's probably my explanation for why the prediction of health savings account adoption has fallen short. It's still going up, but really at a minuscule rate. And I think if I were a consumer who was given a choice and said, well, here's a medical wallet, you can use it to pay for healthcare services, I would take that wallet and go out into the landscape and say, well, there's nothing here I want to buy. And if that's the situation, no wonder medical wallets and health savings accounts never really took off. What we need is a lot more healthcare delivery services that are affordable and convenient and simple to use and provide care in ways that patients really want. And I think once you have things that patients want to pay for, well, then you'll see a lot more disruption coming along in healthcare payments. I've just published a paper, co-authored the doctor from... Mayo Clinic, Arizona, Murray Feldstein. And Murray and I were writing about something that was very much influenced by your book, uh, which is on medical licensure, medical education. And I think one of the areas where my prediction would be your book will eventually have hit it out of the park, but hasn't yet, at least not in the United States, is in the disruption of medical education. You, you had fascinating models there of essentially restructuring medical education to something like the training programs that uh, Toyota uses in its factories. And I, earlier, I, another of the podcasts I did earlier this year was with a great physician, uh, Dr. Debbie Shetty, CEO and founder of the Narayana System in India, which, which has gotten very close to many of the things that you discuss. And we talked at length about the future of medical education in India. And I suspect the model that you describe will come to be a dominant model. But in the United States, there's an awful lot of resistance to, to changing the education model that we've had for basically 111 years or so. Yeah. And, and you're pointing to, again, a lot of the regulations and red tape that prevent disruption from really taking hold in the U.S. or really any area that has a fully developed, matured healthcare industry. And it's because, again, it's very difficult to allow startups that come in to do things differently because the immediate response is, well, you're sacrificing quality here. And so, you know, I remember interviewing an executive who was working with Aravind Eye Hospital in India, which does 
cataract surgery and other eye surgeries for very, very low cost. And they were trying to import that model to the United States. And he said, one of the biggest barriers that we that eventually proved insurmountable was the fact that in India, they were using healthcare professionals and healthcare support personnel that didn't exist here or were, would never be allowed to do the things they were doing based on their licensure and accreditation in the U.S. that they were being allowed to do in India. So he said it was it was a model that worked. You had the evidence. You had the huge cost savings that you that were plain to see, but were ultimately impossible to import into you into the U.S. And so, yeah, you know, that's again an illustration of why it can be so difficult to not just disrupt an industry but disrupt healthcare in particular. And it's almost going to require, I think, some either safe havens in the U.S. for healthcare innovation where you can test out some of these models, um, hopefully free of some of these regulations, as long as you can show uh, that you meet safety and quality standards. Or something that I've heard called boomerang innovation, which is U.S. entities set up uh, offshore or international extensions that are allowed to explore some of these models differently. And then once you once these American companies are armed with their own evidence can then bring it back safely to the U.S. because here it comes under the the notion that it was an American company that did this. And that, that might be more easily accepted, I think, by regulators and the American public. Yeah, actually, Shetty's group set up a hospital in the Caribbean that was co-founded uh, with an American hospital system. And I suspect that that was part of the motive. And in that, in the podcast with him, he discussed a position that he'd created called Critical Care Assistant, which essentially was a cardiac operating room nurse who does not study the rest of nursing. Uh, they study what you do in a cardiac operating room and nothing else. And he argues that they, they learn it incredibly well, uh, better than someone who's much more of a generalist. So it's, it's an interesting discussion worth taking a look at. We can probably talk all day about the book, and we'll probably come back to it, but let's let's move on a little bit. First of all, tell me a little bit about your medical career, both the patient care and the, te- and the part about teaching med students and uh, whether or not you still spend some time in patient care or whether business has sort of crowded that part of you out. Yeah, my, my clinical career was pretty short. I went to medical school at the University of Michigan, Went to residency closer to home at uh, UC Irvine, did an internal medicine residency, and really was divided between going into a a specialty. My interest was in critical care medicine, and so I loved being in the ICU and taking care of the sickest patients in the hospital, or being primary care, where I got to talk to patients and learn about their lives and take care of them for, for hopefully years on end. That appealed to me as well. And... What changed my career path early on was, I think I started to look at what the career path would look like if I went into any of these these particular avenues, and I could just see myself burning out in 20, 10 to 20 years. It was just a treadmill of sort of the same thing over and over again, even in as something as interesting as critical care, but ultimately... I, I could see myself burning out because of repetition. On top of which, you know, I knew once I got into 
you know, independent practice that you would have additional red tape to deal with, such as, uh, you know, billing and back office stuff and having to, to run an administrative staff. All of those sort of take your take away from what a lot of doctors love about the profession, which is actually caring for patients. And so, you know, I, I think it was ultimately just a realization that full-time clinical practice was just not something that I was going to really love. And it was during this time that I was still debating what to do, and I was asked to stay on an additional year as a chief resident. And as a chief resident, you're sort of a an apprentice attending physician. You know, you, you're given the responsibility of running a team, of teaching medical students, but you're not paid by like, a, like an attending physician quite yet. But it sort of opened my eyes to the value of teaching. Uh, you know, you, you teach throughout your your medical school training, your residency. You're always you always have people below you that you're trying to lift up and educate. But really, as an attending physician, I think that's really where it's part of your job description. And that's when I said, "Oh, you know, I I I really you know enjoy this part. It's something that I could see holding my interest, perhaps not full time." And then th- again, sitting on the wall about what to do with my career, I had always also wanted to get into healthcare reform in some form or fashion. And as I was seeing the healthcare industry becoming more and more influenced by business and um, you know non-clinical entities, I said, "Boy, that's a part of my education that was missing. I really had no exposure to." the business decisions that were being made in the background that influenced ultimately the care that I was being asked to give. And so that led me down the path of applying to business school. It was really a whirlwind decision. I think in a three-month span, I decided to apply to business school, registered for and took the the GMAT and applied for and then did all my interviews for business school. And I, maybe it was four four months or so, but it was really fast. And once I got into Harvard, I said, okay, well, I, I, it'd be hard to turn on Harvard, even though I'm still on the fence. I'll give it a go. And it's funny because I had to enroll in what uh, was nicknamed Math Camp because I had no business experience, no courses in business whatsoever. And so I had to take online courses with the University of Phoenix to finish you know, some prerequisites in accounting and finance. <laughs> I had to show up at business school a few weeks early to to take uh, an intensive you know, course on, on how to do spreadsheets and and just uh, learning the lingo. But ultimately that that decision was was fantastic because it really allowed me to hit on all the points that I realized that I loved or dis, uh, and avoid maybe some of the things I disliked along the way. So for example, when I first took Clay's class even before I started working with him, he described management, business management as a very noble profession because you, you know, your job is not just to run a business and make money for your shareholders. It was also to mentor your staff and to train them up and educate them and hopefully elevate them to future leaders of the of the industry or to leadership in other companies. And he proffered up, you know, leaders like Imelt at GE that who had, you know, developed a very deep corporate bench who then went on, uh, you know, those those leaders went on to lead amazing companies and and Jack Welch before him. And and so, you know, that appealed sort of to the teaching side of me. I said, well, if I get involved in business, I'm, I can still fulfill that itch. I could still take the clinical knowledge I had gained. And even though I'm not doing clinical practice, I could still influence patient lives in ways that were very meaningful, but to do it in very large numbers, potentially. And so I think uh, 
it was not a fully thought out career path, but the fact that I ended up sort of marrying the business side with, you know, the healthcare side of my my background ended up being a very fortuitous turn in my career. Well, I can empathize with your busy four-month period. So I went to Columbia University for my PhD in economics in 1980. I was 26. I didn't ever take an economics or business course until the year before that. I had taken very little, uh, almost no math, though I always had kind of an aptitude for math, but I just didn't take any courses in it in college. And I decided to do this. I took a twisty path and crammed myself with some courses. And basically, Columbia said, you know, we'll, we're, we're happy to take your tuition money. Uh, if you If you can't make it here, we'll throw you out. And here's a book. Buy it and learn everything in it before you get here. And so I spent a, a long year of studying mathematical economics in preparation. And well, I don't know. It worked. So I kind of I kind of like the challenge of it. So let's get specific. You were the co-founder of an interesting company that I have written about in the past, Lemonade Health. And for those who are interested, it's in this case, Lemonade is spelled L-E-M-O-N-A-I-D, not A-D-E. And the company is also known as Icebreaker Health. Maybe you got to remind me why it has two names and tell us what the original idea of the company was. Sure. So just, just to get over the technical explanation, Icebreaker Health is the holding company, if you will, or the administrative company. And Lemonade is sort of the brand that faces the customer. And the reason partially for that division is because there are a lot of states that prevent corporate uh, ownership of medical practices. And so one reason for that name difference is to allow everyone in the company that has equity to own something that wasn't a medical provider. And that was icebreaker. And yet you still needed something that the physician side owned that was actually providing the care and that became lemonade. And so it was really a regulatory statute that necessitated that division. That's the, uh, I'll just jump in and say that's, that's called corporate practice of medicine. 1920s doctrine, uh, I have compared it to saying that all airlines must be owned by pilots. With roughly yeah. that effect. Yeah. So, so you know, again, I, I like to, when I when I talk about regulations, I often point out that, look, a lot of them are well-intentioned. And you can sort of see the reason why you wouldn't necessarily want a non-clinician directing the activities and behavior of a clinical provider because you want the clinical provider making the best clinical judgment, not necessarily being driven by any business needs. Um Again, well-intentioned, but again, it, it en ends up putting a stranglehold in areas that we didn't anticipate. And the additional regulatory headaches it can introduce on companies like uh, Icebreaker slash Lemonade or many others, it ends up, you know, showing those uh, those negatives um, down the line. And, you know, you can look at any, or any of these uh, older regulations that are, you know, we're facing the need to try to figure out either how to circumvent or overturn. You know, everything like, I think, Certificate of Need is another one. So so I'm sure you've you've written about a, a lot of these regulations that, again, well-intentioned at some point, but perhaps are now outdated and we need to roll back or restructure. But anyway, uh, the genesis of, of Lemonade, it was um, a couple of my British co-founders. They had started a company in the UK that I, th I 
have written about um, and compared to a company in the U.S. called Zipnosis, which itself was co-founded, I think, by some of the original executive team of Minute Clinic. And so, again, it was a model that I found very fascinating because you had these people who had already disrupted once through Minute Clinic, putting their resources behind Zipnosis and seeing what it, what it, they were doing in the UK. You know, I, it, so it was something I spoke about and wrote about, and we just kept in touch through the years. And basically the model was telemedicine, but mostly via text messaging and web forms. So telemedicine to that point was mostly you and a doctor talking on a, on a video screen. And you would have the exact same conversation you would have on the video screen as you would have in person. And to me, you know, people wanted to highlight the benefits of that. You know, you didn't have to travel. It was perhaps slightly lower in cost. And so a lot of the proponents of telemedicine at the time were, were crowing about those characteristics. And I said, boy, but you're really missing out on a lot of the benefits of, of not just the screen, but having a computer really sitting in between you two. Why not start applying some, some, some computing technology to that interaction? And so the first thing that these newer models in the form of Zipnosis and the company in the UK were doing was allowing the computer to ask a lot of the questions. And if the patient, if, if these companies knew what condition the patient was coming for, then the doctors behind the scenes could tell the computer, well, these are all the questions I would want to ask a patient who come, comes in for this. So the computer asks all the questions asynchronously, basically not live, but it's, it's a, a Q&A that the patient can fill out in his or her own time, any time of night, and submit answers. And then the software would do all the heavy lifting. It would screen the patients in or out of the protocol that, again, were written by doctors, but the software was basically sorting patients according to the instructions of the doctor, saying, well, this patient's acceptable and has answered all the questions in a way that's acceptable for treatment, or you know, this small fraction of patients are unacceptable or need further help. And based on that, you could prescribe uh, to patients uh, guided by that software where essentially the decision's already been made. It's it's much like that point of care diagnostic I was describing earlier with the nurses, where if the technology's already done all the heavy lifting, well, the doctor just has to has to click a button and say, okay, let's prescribe to these you know ninety percent of patients that already passed all the questions that I wanted to ask them, and then for these ten percent of patients that perhaps had some yellow flags or red flags, maybe I'll I'll send them a text and ask them, can you just send me more information, or did you not understand this, or I'm sorry I can't treat you because you answered X. And so, yeah, it became just a very hyper-efficient model for sorting patients into buckets that were acceptable for treatment, not acceptable for treatment. And so it was this sort of algorithmic care that fit, again, a lot of the hallmarks that I had written about and spoken about in my days with Clay and in writing the book that I saw in these companies. And so the folks in the UK sold their company to Lloyd's Pharmacy and it became Lloyd's Online Doctor in the UK, which is still going today. And then I think the outcome financially was not so great for them. And yet they had all this experience. And so they wanted to bring that model to the, to the US. Gnosis had not really grown much, despite the appeal of the model for me. And so these guys from the UK approached me and asked me if I would want to partner with them to be sort of the clinical person and sort of a, you know, innovation, be the innovation guru that helped lead the effort in the U.S. And so 
you know, that's how the team came together. We basically built up a similar model to what they had done in the in the UK and covered as many conditions as we thought were appropriate. And again, this is we had the same decisions to make that I alluded to that the retail clinics had to make, which is where can we provide care in a very efficient way, but still adhering to all the principles of quality and safety that I as a clinical provider had already learned and experienced firsthand. And so we had to be very careful to handpick the conditions that we were going to treat, make sure our questions were asked in a very understandable fifth grade level, and that we were being very comprehensive in asking every question that was essential for a doctor, or in this case, a software acting on behalf of a doctor to safely make a decision or to triage the patient, basically. And so, yeah, we, we started out with a handful of conditions like birth control prescription, where when I talk about lemonade, I often show people, you know, these are the CDC guidelines, and it's two pages of a really difficult to interpret graph of all the things that a doctor is supposed to ask a patient before he or she can prescribe birth controls to that patient. And no doctor, I think, has the time to really check all those boxes, and nor does a doctor typically know all 140 or so birth control options that there are and the safety profile of each one, the cost of each one, but software can handle all that pretty easily. And so our software helped guide patients, not just through the question and answering and making sure all the questions were appropriately asked, but also helping patients choose the most high value product, uh, birth control pill that was available to them. And we very often, because we, at the time we had no skin in the game, we were agnostic to which birth control pill they chose. We basically just said, look, you know, even if you're uninsured, here's the best choice for you. If you have insurance, this one's best for you. And so again, software could do all a lot of the things that I as a previously as a primary care provider really never had the time to do or even had the knowledge to do. But but software was so much more comprehensive. I often compared it to the TurboTax handholding model, where, you know, again, trying to interpret tax law in the most up-to-date fashion possible to a layperson can be very difficult. But TurboTax is disruptive because it's disrupting, obviously, live accountants, but it also does so in a way that's very smart. It asks questions in a very intelligent way. It, it tends to group things together and tells you, oh, this is not common, but do you have any of these things? Check the box here. And it goes through you know a litany of questions, but in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. And we tried to follow a very similar thing with Lemonade where... You know, as I mentioned, the CDC requires a whole bunch of boxes to be checked before you can safely prescribe birth control pills. And we did our best to winnow it down to, I think, five questions uh, in a way that I thought was very easy for patients who should be getting birth control pills to really get through it quickly in a way that was still safe, but also for to catch patients who really should not be getting birth control pills and to make sure that they were not in an inappropriately prescribed birth control pills. Well, the fact that your company was called Icebreaker uh, allows me to segue into a little exercise that I did for many years in my teaching career. Uh, I taught at a bunch of universities, taught a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, and I always started the first day's class asking them to tell me their, their names, their hometowns, their professions, and then uh, I would ask, okay, tell me the single most interesting thing about you, and uh, I, I got some over the years, let, let me just say, I got some extraordinarily colorful answers to that question. So uh, 
If I were to ask you that, Jason, well, you know, tell me an interesting fact about you that sort of steps outside of uh, what we've already talked about. So I, I really can't think of anything that makes me that remarkable. Maybe I'm just too self-effacing or too self-critical, but anything that I do well, I can think of a dozen people I know that probably do it better. And so, you know, I, I don't think of myself as any as having any particular skill. And even though I think in my career, I've, I've had the fortune of doing some pretty amazing things, it was really the benefit of just good timing and a willingness to, to participate. One thing that did come to mind is, uh, and if we really want to get off topic, is I have a long streak of every city that I've moved to in my adult life the one of the major sports teams, typically baseball, which is one of the sports I love, has won a, a championship while I was there. And growing up, I didn't think this was such a big deal because I, I grew up mostly in Los Angeles and I grew up rooting for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers always had pretty good teams. They, I think, had won a championship in 81 when I was a little too young. I was seven at that point. So I wasn't really watching baseball, but I just started to follow it, I think, in the in the 80s. And so my peak of baseball fanhood when I was collecting baseball cards, and that's all I did. I watched baseball every day. I checked the stat sheets every morning. Uh, that was probably from 83 till 92. That was probably my peak of boyhood baseball fandom. And so the Dodgers won a championship famously in 88, if I'm getting my years correctly. And that was the year that Kirk Gibson hit that famous home run in game one against the Oakland A's. That was a big moment in my life, of course. It's a, it's a very famous highlight when it comes to uh, baseball playoffs. And, of course, the Lakers were always good, and they won a few championships. But, again, my love was, was baseball, and so it was a big deal for my team to win the championship. And then there was, of course, no pattern yet. Uh, I moved to Michigan for college and medical school and lived there from 92 to 99. And the Tigers were not any good. <laughs> that was the baseball team nearest Ann Arbor. Neither were the Detroit Lions. The Red Wings were pretty good. They won, I think, a couple championships. But the big deal when I was there, of course, was University of Michigan football. And they had not won a championship since the 1940s. And that was really my first time of seeing a very large fan base, you know, going through a lot of heartbreak for decades, always feeling pretty good teams for the most part. Even Bo Schembechler was the coach through... 70s uh, and, and 80s and had a lot of great teams but never cracked through to the national championship but when I was there they finally won a championship in 1997 after I think almost a 50-year drought and they haven't won since that was a big deal when I was there that was sort of my first exposure to a fan base that was desperate for a championship and then uh, after medical school I drove my car and all my belongings back home to Southern California and settled in Orange County as I mentioned, I went to UC Irvine for my residency and an additional year of chief residency, as well as a, a year or two of work. And I went back to Southern California, still rooting for the Dodgers, but then adopted the Orange County team of the Anaheim Angels. And the Angels, in their history, had never won a championship, but then won their first and only World Series title in 2002 when I was there. Still at the time, I didn't really think this was a pattern. It was just the, the local team happened to win, big deal. And then uh, after I finished chief residency and was practicing, that's when I made that whirlwind decision to go to Harvard Business School. And so I moved out to Boston. And this is when I realized, hey, there's a pattern here. Because 
uh, I moved out in early summer of 2004. And, you know, four or five months later, the Red Sox won their championship after their famous drought after that they blamed on the curse of Babe Ruth. And let me see, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the years. I actually looked this up to make sure I got the years right. So 2004 was when they won. They had not won since 2018. And so once again, a fan base that was desperate for a championship. 1918. Yes, 1918. And so, yeah, you're talking about an 86-year drought at that point. And so, again, you witnessed this explosion of happiness, and which was very cool to see. And again, I, I started to recognize, boy, I've, I've experienced this a lot every time I've been to it. You need to come up with a business arrangement with the gaming industry. They will pay you to move. Yeah, yeah. And I, so at that point, I actually kept a list of, of all these times that, is, that this had happened. And then uh, after I finished my, my book writing with Clay and uh, had started the think tank, we wanted to move the think tank out to Northern California. And so that's when I settled in the San Francisco Bay Area. And of course, the team there is the San Francisco Giants. I moved out in 2009, and they promptly won championships in 2010, 2012, and 2014. Those were their first championships in 56 years. So <laughs> not bad. I got to convince the city of Cleveland uh, to pay me to go out there and uh, help, right. uh, help the Indians or Browns win. <laughs> I will have to say, you mentioned one there. I the The best sporting event I ever attended was... I was at the final game of the 1981 World Series and got to watch L.A. Um, yes, I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was 9-2. to two, And, in fact, it got so bad that the Yankees fans started cheering for L.A. because they, they knew they weren't going to get a chance to cheer for the Yankees that night. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Well, we've had a good talk here. Are there, is there anything I've left out, anything you want to share um, before we call it a day? No, no, that was a pretty comprehensive look at the book and my career. Thank you for, for inviting me. Well, good. I could probably do a better job than you at talking about what an interesting guy you are because you, uh, you, really, you really have had a stunning uh, career and look forward to seeing what else you're going to do with it. We sure hope we get to see each other in person again before too long. Same here. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.